I've never been good at little songs and limericks and because I never remember the words. <laughs> terrible. Like, I'm terrible with all those, this bone's connected to that bone and that kind of thing. <laughs> what I am good at is I'm good at timelines and what comes before something else or what system happens in a timeline in a chronological order. Oh. Hello, and welcome to the Don't Forget Yoga podcast. Helping new yoga teachers absorb yoga wisdom with music, mantras, mnemonics, and timelines. <laughs> I'm your host, Derek Pashupa Goodwin, a 600-hour certified yoga teacher, kirtanwala, and yogi who sometimes has trouble remembering things. For the next few episodes, I'll be catching up with people who were in the 2011 Jiva Mukti Yoga teacher training with me to see where they are now and to find out how they remember important aspects of the yoga teaching practice. This will help me get back to my beginner's mindset as a teacher so that I can better serve you as a new yoga teacher. Today's guest is Austin Sanderson, who owns the Urban Sadhu Yoga Studio in Jersey City, New Jersey. The studio was originally Jiva Mukti Yoga, Jersey City, and I used to be a teacher there when I was living in New York City. Austin is the author of the Urban Sadhu Chant book, which features illustrations by Devdutt Patanayak, an author and mythologist from Mumbai, India. Austin has studied with Devdutt and other yoga scholars and has a very deep understanding of the schools and traditions that brought us from the Vedas to modern-day yoga in the West. Austin and I had a long conversation about the historical timeline of yoga, which barely scratches the surface of what there is to know. To keep this episode short and concise, I'm splitting the conversation into two parts. Today we'll cover the Vedic era, the Bhagavad Gita and the Puranas, and in part two we will discuss the Yoga Sutras, Tantra, and the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. But first, I wanted to hear how Austin ended up in the teacher training with me and his path to becoming a studio owner. So my journey into this, I was a uh, costume designer. I worked around the country in regional theaters, did some Broadway stuff, did a little film television. I had worked in entertainment for 30 years. I was kind of going through a midlife crisis. I was... 47 years old. And I had been seeing a really great therapist to kind of help me work through my midlife crisis. I didn't like what I was doing anymore, but I wasn't ready to quit it. I was just disappointed at where I was. And I was a working designer, but I'd never become an A-lister. I was always like on the B-list. She only saw me for a few sessions. She said, you know, you should like try meditation. And then she said, why don't you go to a yoga class or something like that? We had kind of talked it out and there was nothing left for us to talk about. So I went to a yoga class at a gym and it was a Jiva Mukti teacher. And um, I was kind of hooked and I practiced for a year and I thought, well, I'm behind and I don't really understand this. So I'll go do a teacher training. I was going to do a teacher training. And that teacher said to me, she said, you have to do Jiva Mukti. You can, you should only do Jiva Mukti. <laughs> and um, my grandmother had passed away. The Jiva Mukti training was 
expensive. She'd passed away and left me a little inheritance. And so I took that and I, I went to the Omega teacher training. And I totally thought that I was just going to learn and then kind of be where I needed to be to understand what I was doing. I got home and I was at home for three days. And that same teacher, I got a phone call and she said, they're waiting for you at the studio. I'm sick. I can't teach. You got to go teach. And I said, I can't teach this class. And she said, you got to, because I've told them you're coming. And she hung up the phone on me. So I was kind of thrown into teaching within three days after I'd gotten back from Omega. I guess I did okay because the owner of the studio was in the room and he said, well, I want to put you on the sub list. And then the same thing kind of happened at a local gym. And I went in and taught for somebody who quit. I, you know, the word got out, Austin will sub. I went in and taught a yoga teacher that got mad and quit. And as I came out of the room, the manager said, I have four classes. Do you want to take them? She had four classes. And I said, sure, I'll take them. So I taught for a year and then I did the 800 hours in New York City with Gaia Tree. She was my mentor. It was at that point I thought, well, I could just open up a little yoga studio in Jersey City. But we ended up being a Jiva Mukti Center for 10 years, <laughs> which was kind of intense. With Sharon Gannon's recommendation, she had heard that I was going to open up a yoga st uh, studio. And she stopped me in the hall and she said, I hear you're opening up a yoga studio in New Jersey. And she said, oh, that's so nice. I think it should be Jiva Mukti. I went, oh, okay. <laughs> and um, so we, Bobby and I talked about it and we thought it was a good idea. And it was, it was a great idea, mainly because I had wonderful teachers. The studio had wonderful teachers. I still think that at that time, the Jiva Muti teacher training was one of the best. And teachers came out and they were able to teach. They gave them a kind of a curriculum that if you followed the curriculum, you would be organized as a teacher and be able to teach in a classroom. So for 10 years, we had young teachers who would do their 300-hour teacher training coming to us and cutting our, their teeth with us and then going to New York City and doing their apprenticeship and then New York City hiring them after we had kind of groomed them in Jersey City. So it was it was a, it was a terrific relationship, but when New York City closed down and shut their doors, I knew we were in trouble, and I knew that we were not going to get teachers, and we needed to move on and start our own teacher training, and some of these things that I had learned outside of. David and Sharon's system at Jiva Mukti, I could incorporate in and kind of maybe clarify some things. I never thought I was going to open up a yoga center. I never thought I was going to be a Jiva Mukti yoga center. And then when I was a Jiva Mukti yoga center, I never thought I was going to leave Jiva Mukti. But things don't always work out the way you think they're going to work out. It's funny how life has a way of setting us on paths we don't expect to be on. I think it's happened to all of us in one way or another. I asked Austin how he came up with the name Urban Sadhu, which I think is really catchy. 
I always like these Angora sadhus. You know, those are those holy men in India that kind of sit around naked and covered in ash. I'm always like, I think these guys are the best. And they're a part of that Hatha yoga tradition, right? One day I was looking at this photo that somebody had sent me of this sadhu who is completely naked, sitting in the street, but with a cell phone. <laughs> And I thought, oh, he's like an urban sadhu. And that stuck. And it was this kind of idea that these ancient teachings are being put in a modern context. Ancient teachings in a modern context is a great place to begin. Austin told me he wanted to talk about the schools of yoga, which can mean a lot of things. So I asked Austin, are we going to be talking about lineages like Iyengar and Ashtanga? Or are we talking about bhakti and karma yoga? Are we talking about Patanjali? What are we talking about here? I think you have to talk about those schools like Jiva Mukti Ashtanga, Iyengar, Power Yoga, because that's where we are in modern society now. But how did we get here? Here again, the timeline. How did we get here? And what was that long journey that got us here and what's misunderstood about the journey getting here. So yes, like how do you get to bhakti yoga and how old is bhakti yoga? And when did it become important in a timeline? And then that becomes really interesting because then you kind of realize that bhakti I mean, you mentioned bhakti, so I'm just bringing that up, that bhakti becomes a powerful system post-Islamic invasion into India. It's the way that we understand bhakti, that bhakti is focused on one deity or one form of God, and that my God's better than your God, and that I'm going to show you that I'm just as powerful about my devotion to my God than you are. So bhakti becomes important in what would have been the Middle Ages of Europe. As I was getting ready to launch this podcast, this interview that I had with Austin got me looking into the timelines of yoga and reading up on the Vedas, which are the early spiritual teachings that became the seeds of Hinduism and yoga. I got really excited when I read the Wikipedia page about the Vedas, and it mentioned mnemonics. Here's what it says. The Vedas have been orally transmitted since the 2nd millennium BCE with the help of elaborate mnemonic techniques. Mantras, the oldest part of the Vedas, are recited in the modern age for their phonology rather than the semantics and are considered to be the primordial rhythms of creation, preceding the forms to which they refer. By reciting them, the cosmos is regenerated by enlivening and nourishing the forms of creation at their base. So I realized that this idea of remembering yoga through mantra and mnemonics was not some gimmick that I came up with for this podcast, but actually a connection back to the earliest spiritual traditions. And that made me feel confident to carry on. Here's what Austin has to say about that oral tradition. One, I think that we have to point out first that recordings are not important to the Indians, what we call India today. The spoken word was more important. 
what was being said was more important. So here again, yoga text recorded on paper is very late for them. The Chinese, on the other hand, you know, at the same time recorded everything on paper. So you had two cultures fairly close to each other that did have influence on each other, but one written text was important. The other written text was not important. Spoken text was more important to the Indians. And uh, the first period that we can kind of really look at is the Vedic period. Uh, You could get into an argument of how old that is, depending on who you're talking to and how they feel politically about some issues. 3,000, 5,000, you hear both of those. It's an early period, and it's the first time you see this term yoga or yoga that yoga is coming out of, but it really is about the fire ceremony and the offerings made to the sky gods or the atmospheric gods. You're giving something and then you're wanting something in return. So that yoga or that union was a symbiotic relationship that was happening through these ceremonies and these chanting of Vedas. It was a very esoteric and also a very ritualistic system where karma only meant that you were putting something into the fire and expecting something back. That was the only meaning of action at that point. But that's where we start to really form this idea of union or coming together or yoking to is a very early period, but it's not yoga as we know it. It's not yoga as we think of it in any way, shape or form. It's ritualization. It's karma yoga. First there were the Vedas enchanted mantras That were written down later We call them Shruti What is heard and home from God in every word Ritual, ceremony, sacrifice Mantras, benediction Would you call this time dualist or non-dualist? And could you explain the difference? It's obviously a slightly dualistic system. Dualist meaning that God is somewhere and you are here. I mean, there's a lot of different layers of dualism. Christianity is a dualistic system. There's God who is in the clouds, but then there's devil below who's like tempting you. That's a dualistic system. God's all powerful, but he needs your help to fight the devil because the devil can't be defeated for some reason, but he's all powerful. (laughs) That becomes a dualistic system. Dualism could also be the idea of, of cosmic consciousness is not found in nature, that Prakriti and Purusha are two different things. Prakriti being nature, Purusha being consciousness, or higher consciousness, and they're separated. And this is a system like Patanjali, where he feels that nature is actually keeping you from understanding your true nature or the higher self. So in the Vedic system, you would, you're, you're probably experiencing mostly a dualistic system because your, your Dave's are somewhere in the atmosphere above the clouds, and it's Agni, the fire, 
and the smoke from the fire that's taking them the messages and the offerings. So they're not kind of with you and hanging out there with you and kind of sitting by your side. So there's obviously a this plane, that plane, or this loka and that loka. So it's a dualistic system. Non-dualism would be that God and you are one and the same and everything is God. And then you have systems within these yoga philosophies that are like non-dualistic with a little bit of dualism or non-dualism with an equal amount of non-dualism and they get confusing, <laughs> but they're kind of important to understand. I mean, I think those are that's really an important thing to understand is a philosophy or a text or a, a system, dualistic or non-dualistic. I'm going to jump in here and mention that the sacred Hindu literature is broken into two categories, Shruti and Smriti. In the transliteration of Sanskrit, Shruti is spelled S-R-U-T-I and Smriti is spelled S-M-R-I-T-I. And both have diacritical marks to further demonstrate the correct pronunciation. I don't claim to have perfect pronunciation of Sanskrit by any means. I think I'm fairly close on those two words, though. Um, Shruti means that which is heard. And it refers to the Vedas and the Upanishads, specifically. Shruti is wisdom for all time. So it's kind of like the voice of God although it comes through the rishis, the holy men of the times. But it's unchanging, and it's always relevant. One of the ways I remember the word shruti is because there's a musical instrument called a shruti box, and it's a wooden box with a bellows. It sounds much like a harmonium, but it only plays drone notes, so you can open little holes on the side of it that determine which notes are playing. And it's great for chanting mantras. Now, smriti means that which is remembered. Don't forget. <laughs> and in general, it refers to everything after the Upanishads. Smriti texts can be considered derivative, and they're usually attributed to specific authors. So, say the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali as an example. Another thing about smriti is that it's not meant to be eternally relevant like Shruti. So Shruti, you could say, is the wisdom that is always relevant. Whereas Smriti, the relevance changes based on the individual, based on the culture, based on the time frame. After the Upanishads, we have the texts like the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the Tantras, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and then the epics like the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. We're now going to explore the Upanishads, which I like to think of as the seeds for everything that comes afterwards. The compilation of the Upanishads happened roughly from 700 to 500 BCE in India. And they are considered Vedanta, which means the end of the Vedas. The word Upanishad means sit nearby. And it refers to the relationship between a teacher and a student. Sit nearby, hear the Upanishad. 
Atman, Brahman, the soul and God We call it Vedanta, the end of the Vedas It plants the seeds for what comes later Karma, Bhakti, Meditation Yoga, Jnana, Liberation Well, there's definitely a shift of how this is being taught. The Upanishads are all really a series of questions and answers. In almost every one of them, there is a teacher or a deity or a father and a son, or there's some kind of relationship between someone who has knowledge and somebody who's looking for knowledge. And it's a series of questions that are really trying to explain the Vedas, so it becomes much more of a, a classroom situation when you start looking at them and, and reading them in depth. And it's obvious that people are asking questions and they're trying to figure out how to give answers to these esoteric questions of everything from what happens to the soul after I die to what does own me. What is the meaning of Om? Like, why are we chanting Om? What we get out of the Upanishads is still very highly, you know, it's, it's really academic and complicated to understand and very esoteric. But you are seeing the beginnings of the idea that the seeker has to seek. You have to ask a question. And this is one of the things that I keep kind of emphasizing with so many people who are in my teacher training is that if you don't ask a question, I can't give you an answer. So if you sit there looking at me and treating yoga as you did, you know, your American high school, which is learn for the test, pass the test, get out of here and get your diploma and go to the next thing where you have to learn for the test and memorize for the test, take the test, pass the test, and then go to the next thing, then you're never going to really understand on a deeper level these very esoteric teachings of yoga. So Upanishad, this huge shift of where there are no questions and answers in the Vedas, it's all like direct repeating these mantras and text, offering them to the sky gods, offering them up as ways of communicating with something on a higher plane to these teachings of what starts to look more like yoga to us. There's the teacher who has this knowledge and there is the student who is seeking and there becomes this relationship between the student and the teacher and the teacher trying to help the student advance in their knowledge. So it's obviously it's a shift from karma yoga to jnana yoga or the yoga of knowledge seeking, but seeking on an internal level. In editing this episode, I'm realizing just how difficult it is to condense millennia of wisdom traditions into a form that gives us landmarks to remember. In future episodes, I hope to explore specific mantras and teachings from the Vedas and Upanishads, and I encourage yoga teachers to explore them further on their own. But here I will share a couple of verses with you from the Upanishads to help whet your appetite. For example, Om is explained 
in the Mundaka Upanishad, Om is the bow, the arrow is the self, Brahman the mark. By the undistracted person it is to be penetrated. One should come to be in it as the arrow becomes one with the mark. Isn't that beautiful? Now forgive my pronunciation, but the Shveta Shvatara Upanishad <laughs> says this. In a clean spot, free from pebbles, fire, and gravel, delightful by its sounds, its water and bowers, favorable to thought, not offensive to the eye, in a hidden retreat protected from the wind, one should practice yoga. Does that sound like your yoga studio? <laughs> All right. To wrap up this episode, part one of my interview with Austin, we're going to briefly cover the Puranas. The Puranas are the stories of the gods. And like the Vedas, they begin with oral tradition. And then around the beginning of the Common Era, they started to get written down. And they evolve through time with various authors and traditions adding to the stories. Yes, I mean, both, you know, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata are like the great epic tales of India that tell where, you know, you have a people telling you where they come from, who they are and how their their um, their reality of their culture. And here but here again, this is um, oral tradition. This is all oral tradition. How far that oral tradition goes back, we have no idea. Storytelling is the oldest thing. It's much older than anything else. Telling stories, we love to tell stories to each other. That's what people love to do. What we do know is that, you know, when you say the Ramayana or you say the Mahabharata, you have to kind of say who's Ramayana and who's Mahabharata because there are more than one translation. And they differ from region to region, and there are uh, minor stories put into them that are folk tales that are put into the ones that are in different regions. What most Westerners are talking about are the classical Sanskrit versions. Those are the ones that they're familiar with, if they're familiar with them at all. But we do we do move from this idea of Patanjali and this very esoteric academic looking at the mind and how the mind works, which is still complicated for most people. Most people are not going to grasp this in detail because, you know, you then you move into the world of the post-Buddhist era where the Puranas become important. And this is where uh, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, the stories of Shiva, the stories of Vishnu, the stories of Devi, Nesha, these, these stories become important. Now, remember, they're all still trying to explain to you the Vedas. <laughs> it's all this a continuous but it's now put into a storytelling format and being written down and being performed in theatrical pieces and uh, musical pieces so that people can understand these ideas through story. And uh, the Bhagavad Gita 
the song of God, which is a discourse between Krishna and his friend Arjuna on the battlefield the night before civil war, is only one small chapter in this huge epic book of the Mahabharata. And it's kind of in the middle of it. It is not the only Gita that Krishna gives. He, Krishna in the Mahabharata, he gives, I think, three or if not four Gitas. This becomes like really an extension of, of the Upanishads because it's still like a question and answer. Arjuna is asking a question and Krishna is answering. So it's a student-teacher relationship. But this time the teacher is a form of, some would, some would argue that it is the supreme form of God. Others would say it's an avatar of Vishnu. Um, you know, we can leave that up to them to fight that out and argue, but it is a divine form that is there as the friend and, and, and guide to this prince who's having to fight this civil war. So it becomes a very, it becomes like a non-dualistic situation. In other words, God's there with me. But it's not completely non-dualistic. I'm never going to be Krishna, right? There's still a separation between Krishna and I, but Krishna is my friend. There's a personal relationship I have with him. There's a personal identification I have with him. No longer is he Ishvara, the Lord, the, uh, the, the, the God of formless, but he's now a familiar, friendly form that I can understand. And he's going to answer all my questions <laughs> and he's going to make it easy for me. He's going to make it. I mean, and that's, and that's maybe the difference between him and Patanjali is Krishna is really trying to make this easy for Arjuna, but he starts, he teaches Arjuna the three forms of yoga, the major forms of yoga. He starts with Gyana yoga. He, and he basically says the same thing. You have to seek. You have to want to know this knowledge. If you don't seek, if you don't become a sadhaka, then you're never going to really fully understand these teachings. Then he teaches him karma yoga. And still, Arjuna is very confused because he doesn't really understand how to take on the actions that he has to take on and still achieve this thing called yoga. And then finally, Krishna teaches him bhakti yoga, and he says, look, make all your actions an offering unto me. Everything now becomes devotional yoga, and the action that you have to take is, is an act of devotion. And that becomes kind of a big game changer in achieving yoga, because yoga means that when you say that I have a relationship with God and that my actions, if I just offer my actions to God and then do what I have to do in life, that everything will work out okay, then I've just simplified everything. I've just simplified this idea of, of yamas and niyamas and... Um, dualism and non-dualism and um you know the arguing of these schools of thought is the divine here or is it somewhere else 
Is it out there? And I can union with it through my actions as long as my actions are a form of devotion, of love. And that's a big shift. All of a sudden, all of us can participate in yoga. That's where we're going to leave it for this episode. In the next part of my interview with Austin, we'll talk about Patanjali, the Tantras, the Shiva Sutras, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and some of the other traditions and philosophies that lead us to modern-day yoga. Austin and his partner Bobby are the owners of Urban Sadhu Yoga in Jersey City, New Jersey, which you can find at urbansadhuyoga.com. Sadhu is spelled S-A-D-H-U, so it's urbansadhuyoga.com. They offer online classes and in-person classes and teacher trainings. There's two coming up this year, two teacher trainings. Austin has three Instagram accounts associated with Urban Sadhu, so you can type Urban Sadhu into the search on Instagram and find him there. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on your favorite podcast app or leave us a voicemail at don'tforgetyoga.com to ask a question that we'll answer on the show or to leave feedback. I'd really love to hear from you. And always remember, don't forget yoga. Don't forget now, don't forget now, don't forget now, don't forget. Don't forget it. Namonics.